Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, everybody, Swaim here. With added excitement in my voice because it might equate to money for me. Uh, I just wanted to officially let everyone know through the medium of audio rather than tweets that Small Beans has a merch store now. Yeah, that's right. And this is not just some cash grab with the logos of our shows, although you can get logo tees there if you'd like. We worked very hard with several very talented artists to really present you with shirts and buttons and content to come that we really think is worth your purchase and you're going to enjoy. And if you're someone who hasn't been able to patronize us, this is a fantastic way to support Small Beans directly without having to sign up for Patreon. And of course, you get a physical item in return rather than just our glorious, glorious content, which will remain free, but is not free to make. So we'd really appreciate anyone who's willing to check out the SB merch store. It is at smallbeans.bigcom cartel.com and there you will find a bunch of hilarious shirt designs some limited edition buttons as well as an ever-increasing amount of audio content to download we're talking original rap songs audiobook versions of short stories and so on and we're always brainstorming and trying to add new things to the shop but we'll stop if no one goes there so please check it out smallbeans.bigcartel.com and as always we love you Hello, and welcome back to Tales from the Pit. I'm your host, Michael Swaim, and this is your content trigger warning. This episode, I'm joined by my longtime friend, Katie Willard, to discuss the fact that neither of us is quite where we'd like to be in our careers in Hollywood, and the unique grief process that comes along with realizing that there is no guarantee your childhood dreams will ever come true. If that hurts your heart too much, You might want to save this episode, but if that resonates with you, or you'd like to hear more about the interesting journey that it is to try and break into the entertainment industry, by all means, please listen. However, before we get to the interview portion of the episode, I have another short story I'd like to share with you. This one is called, And It Goes Like This, and much like the recent Darren Aronofsky film Mother! It makes a whole lot more sense if you know what it's a parable for going in. So I'm just going to go ahead and spoil it and let you know that this short story is essentially a parable for what I observe to be the state of art and creativity in Hollywood at present. It is a rather dark and cynical take on the Hollywood system that I wrote during probably the first time I realized in a very real, visceral way that my vision, my childhood vision of the exact dream life I had laid out wasn't going to materialize in exactly the way that I had thought it would. And in this case, I'm referring specifically to my entertainment goals, my dreams of being a filmmaker, and so on. So instead, I got depressed and I went home and I wrote a fable. And here it is. And I hope you like it. If you're not interested in the short story, which is particularly long this time, I'm sure someone in the comments will give you the time code you need to skip right to the interview, so look there.
and it goes like this, a fable. The next time you're at the beach, stand at the very edge of the water, where the waves bite at your ankles and dig little holes in the sand beneath each of your toes, and gaze out across the great gray plain of the ocean. Stare at the horizon, squint, strain your eyes as hard as you can, but still, you won't see it. You may think you have seen it, but you will soon realize with disappointment that what you have seen is simply a boat in the distance, drift of seaweed, or the workings of an overeager mind. This thing that you will not see is an island tucked just behind the curve of the world, far off of any coastline. The island is surrounded on all sides by a deep, startlingly blue skein of water, and its golden sands and yellow palms make it look from the sky, although an airplane has never flown overhead, like a brass button in a great felt navy coat. The island is not over-large, but it is large enough to show up on a map of the region, although it has never been on any map. The sands slope steeply out of the water at the edges and form a series of broad beaches, some white, some gold, that undulate softly against the sea, like the lines of a natural calligraphy. Further back, small scrubby stands of stubborn beach grass and occasional shoots of yellowed bamboo stud the beach. Here and there, bits of driftwood have been set or washed into cryptic ideograms. A few steps further in, and you are confronted with the first emissaries of the jungle, the oldest and tallest palm trees, their rough trunks having grown outward from the heart of the island. They jab at low angles toward the water and leave their bushy animal heads floating a few feet above the hot sand. Tracing their trunks back toward the center of the aisle, one finds a wall of palms, ferns, mosses, and elephant ears, all jostling for sunlight. If you could see the sunlight on the island, you would not blame them. The sunlight on the island is clear and pristine, raining down from an eternally cloudless cornflower sky. It pours in buckets, drenching the island with milk at dawn, butterscotch at midday, and thick amber caramel in the late afternoon. The sun scuttles like a sea urchin overhead, radiating spines of hazy fire to bathe the sands below. It tears at the edges of itself, like a hole cut with dull scissors in the sheet of the sky, a hole through which falls yard after yard of gossamer light, fabric pulled through glorious fabric from a golden bolt hidden just behind the heavens. There are people on the island. Not too many, by any count, for there is still plenty of room on the island to explore and cultivate, but there are enough, enough people to form tribes, enough so that no one is ever lonely for long. From the high peak of the towering mountain in the center of the island, one can spot bear patches all across the jungle, where people have scratched out clearings for towns, roads, city halls. At night, the flickering light of a fire radiates from each town as if it were a miniature volcano spewing still-burning ash upward on dark, sweet-smelling billows of smoke. This is the smell of the tribe cooking dinner, of course, a great communal feast of swordfish or marlin or, very occasionally, pig. Everyone on the island is a fisherman. Though there are many different tribes and many types of people on the island, short, tall, fat, slender, 
some with skin like cocoa, some like copper, some with round eyes, and some with almond eyes. And though the different tribes differ in many customs, the clothes they wear, the gods they worship, the way they treat their elderly and children, whom they let marry whom and why and for how long, one of the two things that everyone on the island has in common is that they fish. Young and old, there's simply no way to survive on the island without fishing. The occasional warthog or rabbit captured in the jungle is far from sufficient, and so it is that every morning there are thousands of ships of all types crowding the shoreline, and all through the day there are fishers with their nets or hooks or wooden traps bobbing on the sea, catching fish after fish to haul back in for supper. Out on the ocean, waiting for their fish, the people of the island talk to each other, of course. A bulky woman with a shock of brown hair sailing in a pale canoe might drift towards the dark rowboat of a man all covered in black tattoos and shout to him, asking how his family and his tribe fare, and who is chief now, and has he heard anything about the panther that was prowling around last week. In this way, all the thousands of people living on the island get to know one another, and the tribes, though separate, are knowledgeable of each other's customs, and at least in this way they become united. The other thing that everyone on the island has in common is the festival. On a particular day, when the sun rides just so in the sky, all the people on the island know that the time has come for the great festival, and without a word said to the other tribes, each assembles on the biggest beach just as dusk comes on. Bathed in the purple light of a failing day, they draw all of their boats to the water's edge until every family on the island stands beside a boat, waiting for the first star of the night to signal the beginning of competition. The line of boats spans the entire length of the island's longest beach, like bunched beads on a necklace. The water laps at thousands of hulls. Curved, squared, flat-bottomed, even log-hewn rafts and one-man kayaks carved from a single trunk. Beside each boat is a man or woman or family, all with necks craned upward, all straining to be the one to catch sight of the night's first star. Eventually, of course, the star appears, flares into life, twinkles above their heads, emblazoned like a silver stud on the deep leather night. To them, it's like a starter's pistol. As one, they all shout, hoot, and whoop, and the clamor shakes the entire island, rocketing outwards in all directions, even to the high peak of the towering mountain. The noise shakes birds from their trees, sending them clumsily into the air to wheel and squawk for a few moments before alighting on a branch once more, realizing that the terrible sound must only be the human creature's festival come again. As the birds draw their wings back around their heads to sleep, down below on the beach, the people of the island scramble to heave their ships into the water. Digging their heels into the sand, they lean back, pulling the bulk of the ship out into the glassy waves and wetting the bottoms of their pants, skirts, and robes. Some of the young ones lift their boats fully overhead in sheer exuberance and sprint into the surf. Some old ones stumble or slip, falling into shallow foam and letting out surprised yelps. Those next to them help them get their ships afloat after a chuckle or two, and within minutes, Almost a thousand ships are drifting outward from the beach, an unbroken line of boats sloughing off the shoreline like a layer of dead skin cells scrubbed clean. 
A few yards out into the water, and this line breaks up. The people speak quietly to one another, wishing them luck and bidding family members goodbye for the evening. They speak in hushed voices, voices smothered by the descending night and nervous joy of the festival. They drift away from one another, spreading onto the sea like balls on a pool table, each toward their own favored spot, each resolved to face the morning sun as champion of the island. The island is now deserted, save for the few sick and very old who can no longer bear to feel the rocking of the sea. These few lay awake, salivating, and remembering when they too competed. Though there can be only one winner each festival, every person on the island knows that they have as much chance of winning as anyone, for this is a lesson taught universally to the young people of the island. Everyone competes in the festival, and anyone may win, if only they try hard enough and are touched with a little divine luck or inspiration. When the boats settle in, some dropping anchor, some simply drifting, trusting the gentle winds that sweep around the island, the people begin preparing their traps. Some are superstitious, caressing carved rocks or found pieces of coral that have been worn smooth by human touch, or else donning pendants made of feathers or a bit of leather string. Nearly all of them have some sort of ritual that helps ensure a good catch, whether it be as simple as double and triple checking the joints and ropes on the trap, or as complex as muttering a secret prayer over the trap, or cutting their hands with a flint knife and smearing blood on the ancient wood. There's technique to the baiting as well, of course. Most will bait their traps with some sort of food, bits of salted pork saved for months, sweet coconut shreds, or a mush made of roots dug from the jungle soil deep at the center of the island. Some add personal trinkets, shiny things, or things they hope the Susurrations may want to trade their shells for. Everyone adds a song. For it is common knowledge on the island that Susurrations love music and songs, and that no fisher has ever caught a Susurration without enticing it first with a song. The song they sing into the traps is the fishing song, which all of the island's children are taught each night as they go to sleep from the time they are born. Because of this, all the people of the island know it by heart, and once they have completed all other preparations, attached the heavy ropes, cut them to the proper lengths, they wait until the stars have all come out, and the night is dark, for there is no moon on the night of the festival. And they sing. The stillness of the air lets the sound travel far, and though the people cannot see one another across the dark warm waters, they can hear the faint, trembling notes of the fishing song coming from all around them, as one by one, each fisher joins the chorus. Some start singing a little before or after the others, so that the air thrums thick with the light melody, and the sound of the song seems to echo and linger long after it is over, like a ghost walking the waves. Although its lyrics were discovered by a young child in a message in a bottle, the melody of the fisherman's song is lost to us. All we know these days is that the song was sad and plaintive, and it goes like this. Mother ocean, father son, brothers, sisters all, raise voices to the lonely night, sing the fishing call. Mother ocean, father son, mend my nets and make them tight. Mother palm and father sand, the coconut I ate, is lonely in my empty throat. 
nothing on my plate, nothing in my tired hands, nothing yet in my boat. After the last voices fade, the people of the island wait in a vast black silence, listening to the lapping of the water and the noises of the song which isn't there anymore. When that too fades, they each drop their traps into the water, careful to make a small splash. Susurrations are timid and easily annoyed. And arm over arm they let out the thick ropes, lowering the song and other bait to the depth they have chosen as ideal. What this depth is is a topic of much debate, of course, as each fisher must make that decision on their own. But once the traps are floating below them, the people of the island wait for the susurrations, their boats gently rocking as water heaves with the breaths of the slumbering earth. Susurrations. Susurrations are very unique creatures. You are likely not to have heard of them, let alone seen one. They only live in the deep ocean and only in the vicinity of the island I'm telling you about. Although Japanese fishermen claim to have caught a susurration which later escaped, this has never been proven, and the photos are likely doctored. Larger than regular crabs, most adult susurrations are the size of a large dinner plate and about as thick as a pillow. One reason susurrations are not well known is that unlike other crustaceans, they are not able to easily leave the ocean. Susurrations prefer the depths of the sea, where they can tunnel through the water like silk, or simply float upside down in rapt contemplation. When taken on land, a susurration becomes stupid and clumsy. Its shell, which while underwater is an ever-changing, shimmering play of light and color, soon becomes a dull, ordinary red when exposed to the air. Susurrations are intelligent and curious creatures, but they adhere to a very strong moral code. If trapped in an underhanded fashion, a susurration will soon use its strong claws and devious intellect to find a way free. But, if trapped properly, in a trap baited with a song or other things which the susurrations prize, they will calmly, though some say solemnly, take their place in the trap and allow themselves to be captured and their shells, which are the object of most who attempt to fish them, to be removed. It is this fact that allows all the people of the island to capture a susurration, as they have known for centuries the proper bait to use and the ways to make a trap comfortable and inviting to one. Usually, it is not long before a fisher who has lowered a trap feels a tug on the line or hears the ringing of a bell to tell them that a susurration has chosen their trap as its final home. Then they happily pull the trap up, hearts beating in anticipation, hoping that their susurration will be the biggest, most beautiful one captured that year. One look at the shimmering phosphorescent shell of their catch, and they are sure it is true. All the way back to the beach they grin secretively, convinced more than ever before that they can win the competition this year. But of course the shell begins to fade to a dull, uninspired red, and by the time they reach the shoreline again, most have begun to second-guess themselves. Before the canopy of stars has been drawn a quarter of the way across the sky, all the boats that left the island are back on the beach, hastily drawn in or tipped up against palm trees scattered across the sand. 
The tracks of thousands of people and thousands of dragged traps form a path from the beach to a clearing only a few hundred yards away, where the large bonfires are already burning, and the next part of the festival is set to begin. Dozens of long wooden tables have been set up, their tops slicked down with a varnish made from tree sap. It captures the light of the burning fires and seems to glow from within. Each villager has caught a susurration. Each and every man, woman, and child has brought their very own entry to the competition. As the islanders dump their traps out onto tables, the creatures stumble around dumbly for a while, bumping into one another as if drunk, before they finally roll over onto their backs and become still. As one, then, the islanders begin to carve, separating the delicate shells from the still-breathing susurrations. Like fishing, this requires its own technique, and each tribe has a different manner of cutting and skinning, a different preference for type of knife, point of first incision, direction of cut. The creatures twitch instinctively when cut open, flinching away from the pain, just as you would. But most of their organs are removed simply enough by reaching a hand in, squeezing the heart, and pulling. All of the susurration's organs are attached primarily to the heart, so this is a very efficient way of deshelling them. The islanders have learned to feel for the small, hard heart and do so with intense focus. They work intently, never speaking other than to grunt in effort or concentration. The work is not silent, however, as the susurrations begin all at once to strike up a cheerful chorus of their song, which the islanders call the death song, in trade for the fishing song that was given to them. The susurration's death song is always the same, and it goes like this. Fisher, you who captives keep, brother, sisters here, the song you sang stuck in my heart, the sky so near looks wide and deep as any fisher's art. Sink upwards, upwards fall, rise up to the depths. The sea is black, the current breathes the ocean's secrets to one and all, but your soul deceives. By the time the susurrations have finished singing, most have been stripped of their shells, which are now a deep, if inert, red. Their silence is taken by most to mean that they have died, although it is impossible to tell whether what remains of the susurration is alive or not. What remains are the crab's innards, little more than a pile of gleaming pulp and various pumping organs, trailing two limp eye stalks at the top. This thick pudding of guts usually has a few items lodged in it, things perhaps that the creatures ate or discovered on the ocean floor, things dropped off the sides of cruise ships or washed out to sea after being left on a beach towel, a digital watch, a tuft of fur, the feel of a handshake from a friend. But all in all, the mess is rather unsightly, and the pile of innards, along with anything stuck in them, eventually melts into a pungent gray slime once left unattended. Some once tried to cook and eat the slime, but it was tough and difficult to prepare and tended to cause indigestion. A few helpful islanders collect the susurration scrap for everyone and make a large pile of it on the beach, where the next day's high tide will, with any luck, carry the stench away. At this point, I'd like to say something about cultural heritage. Although the capturing and deshelling of the susurrations may seem cruel or barbaric to more tender-hearted readers, I wish to remind you 
that you did not grow up on this island, nor in this culture, and that it is rather rude to judge those with whom you are altogether unfamiliar. Let me assure you, these islanders are little different from yourself, and should you have grown up in their company, with their beliefs, you would have a very different view toward the susurrations and the festival, I am sure. In fact, some of your cultural habits, I might point out, would seem rather bizarre and uncivilized to these people. And I think that in general, the world would be a much nicer place if we could refrain from judging one another by our own society's standards and instead learn to put ourselves in the shoes of others and to think about what similarities there may be between us rather than differences. In any case, once the remains of the susurrations have been piled on the beach, the islanders clean and polish the shells that they've collected, careful not to chip the delicate surface, until each shell shines like a burnished red shield under the uneven light of the bonfire. By the time they are finished, the darkest part of the night is past. Most are weary from the hours spent waiting for their traps, shelling the crabs, scraping and polishing shells. Nevertheless, all, even the youngest children competing, shake off sleep and fill their lungs with cold, bracing air. They will need vigor and the enervation of dawn and vision and let the burning that each feels in their chests grow. Take them over bodily and carry them forward with a pure artistic passion that will help them to complete their final and most important task, painting and carving the delicate face of the Susurration's shell. For the festival is, above all, an art competition. It is a battle to arrest, to awe, to stun and crush and seduce with the beauty of one's shell. Each islander has until sunup to reform and refashion their ceramic plate into anything they choose, to wrench their souls from their bodies and etch them whole upon the red canvas of the susurration. Each islander knows, each has been taught and believes to their core, that whosoever harbors a real vision and the clarity and ability to communicate with their own spirit, whosoever desires the most, will ultimately be voted the festival's winner. Art is a reflection of the soul, and the festival then, in a very real way, is a contest of souls. But the people are not foolish, not like the festivals of decades past, when competitors spent hours crawling the jungle floor, snouts in the dirt, scraping hands and knees and cracking knuckles in search of roots, berries to mix into dyes, spying out well-formed rocks to use for their carvings, or scrabbling up rough tree trunks to scavenge feathers and bits of eggshell from a bird's nest for decoration, or whole eggs to make into glue. Some fools, in those less civilized days, even went so far as to scale the high peak of the towering mountain, trying to get a view of the jungle like a smooth dark stone and the water stretching off in its infinite wrinkles and the sky filled with so many stars it was a wonder it didn't come crashing down. These terribly primitive people used to try and use these things to stir their spirit, inform their artistic work, inspire them, but nearly all today agree that climbing the mountain or crawling through the jungle 
isn't worth the bumped shins, bleeding palms, or aching bones. And after all, if your design was inspired by the island, shouldn't the island win? And so today, fancying themselves quite savvy, the islanders competing in the festival have no need of things like dyes or carving tools or water or stars to make their art. They don't need anything to stir their spirits, either. Are their hearts not already beating fast? Are their chests not stinging with the desire to win? Their cheeks not hot and flushed with the throbbing need to prove that they are the best, the most deserving of being recorded for all time as a champion of the festival? No, the islanders are not fools. They know that this is a competition and that, like all competition, it is not merely the greatest artistic endeavor that takes the prize. They know that one must understand the rules in order to win. One must be able to move sideways and climb the ladder backwards to manage the system like one manages the jungle, subtly and with tact. And so the people work on, moving their shells this way and that, rolling them in their hands, pondering what artistic thing may lie inside or be hidden just a millimeter beneath the surface of the chitinous shell. They run their hands along the outside rim, imagining that somewhere within, the key to their victory is locked away, waiting to be released. Each islander holds their shell as if they have already won, as if the shells they hold are gold medals, and the fire dances in their eyes. Hours pass. The sun has almost begun to roll back into the sky, and faint, trembling light peeks out from the world's edge, bringing with it the smell of morning and cold dew on the skin. The great bonfires are smoldering, but they are still intent, still silently moving their shells in their hands. The islanders wait for dawn, which is the signal that the festival has ended, and the time when they will all come together and select a winner. They, all of them, have chosen to leave their shells unmarked. Each is as simple and mutely red as it was when they split them from the susurrations quivering insides. This may seem strange to you, who knows so little about art, but when you hear how smart, how clever and reasonable the people of this island are, you will not think it so strange. If you were to ask one of the island people why they didn't paint or carve their shell, they would answer you quite simply, and it would go like this. When the time comes, each competitor will cast their vote for the winner of the competition, and each person on the island wants nothing more dearly than to win the competition. Is it not therefore to be expected that each and every person will vote for their own entry? If I spend hours Turning my shell into a unique, splendid work of art, it will be all the easier to identify. And no one will dare vote for it. I will lose the competition, having wasted an entire night's effort. On the other hand, if I can make my shell look exactly like another one, there is a chance that a competitor will vote for my shell, thinking that it is theirs. And since my neighbor's shells are blank, I will leave mine blank as well and cast my vote at random, for it is better to have a chance at winning than a guarantee of failure. So you can see, the people of the island are not fools. In time, 
The dawn blossoms into a mane of fire that paints blue back onto the sea and sky and melts the dew from the leaves. Morning has come. Setting down their shells, the islanders gather once again on the beach, where their boats seem strangely cold and alien in the slant of early morning. From somewhere down the beach, a sick, sweet smell drifts from the warming mountain of rotting susurration flesh. The people do not mind it. Their minds are on the vote, and the tide is already rising. Each person grabs a stone or pebble or bit of wood and trudges back toward the table without a word. After the shells are gathered and mixed with each competitor's name marked secretly inside them, they are laid out again, and the islanders carefully weigh their choice, stopping reverently before each identical shell, examining its contours and particular geometry before moving on to the next. One by one, they apply all of their scholarly knowledge, all of their feelings about art, and finally choose and leave their bit of rock or wood on the table in front of the shell that they think is theirs. One by one, these lots are deposited, and slowly piles accumulate, most shells with one vote, but some with two, three, or four, and many with none. Just as the sun's rays start slicing through the highest palm fronds, the votes are counted. This year, the winner received eight votes, eight pebbles, sit in a small pile before the perfectly red shell. For a moment, everyone is still. Each holds their breath, burning, willing that the name on the bottom of the shell be theirs, that they be the artist of this obvious masterpiece. The people gather around it, pushing and pulsing toward it magnetically, elbowing one another to get a better view. Some young ones duck between people's legs. Some mutter quietly, It's mine. I know it's mine. The shell is flipped. The name is red. She is an older woman, bronzed and wrinkled, wearing a loose sarong around her salt-weary body. When they say her name, she yelps, then grins, then laughs properly, and weeps all at once. The people around her turn toward her, wondering if she could really be the one. She gasps again and again until someone from her tribe holds up her arm and shouts to the crowd, It is her! By now, the woman is vibrating with joy, snot running from her nose and tears from her eyes as if she were a baby again. The islanders around her lift her up on their shoulder or simply reach a hand out just wanting to touch her. They lift her high so that everyone can see the great artist, champion of the festival, so that all may bask in the glow of her vision, of her spirit. There is a great cheer, of course, especially from those of her own tribe who feel, at least partly, that they share in her honor. Others cheer and grin, too, seeing her joy, which looks to them like the most supreme joy anyone has ever felt. They ignore the bitter taste that surges up in the back of their tongues and attribute the lightness in their stomachs to lack of food and sleep, reminding themselves that they tried their best and that the woman's shell really was quite extraordinary. They vow to try even harder next year. Only a few of them weep, and those who do are polite enough to leave the crowd and find a quiet place to compose themselves. The crowd moves as one now, as if prodded forward by the spears of the sun. They have a seeming momentum that is building once again, 
moving first to the tables to gather the shells, including the winners, and then tumbling downhill to the beach. Altogether, moving faster now, they throw the losing shells down onto the packed sand by the shore and stomp them into hundreds of jagged pieces. The shells bow under their feet slowly, growing big and pulsing red as hearts, and then splinter with a great cracking noise like the pop of a balloon. Everyone shouts. The winner, still held aloft, looks back rapturously at the millions of tiny fragments littering the beach as the crowd carries her toward the center of the island, past the long tables once again, past the now-dead bonfires, into the jungle, and towards the high peak of the towering mountain. The climb is hard, but the collective energy of the group drives them onward, as it always does, and by the time they have almost reached the cave at the top of the mountain, it is midday. The sun beats down on them, rays perpendicular to the earth, drawing out any sweat that was not already drawn out by the arduous ascent. Some of the small children or older people have stayed at the foot of the mountain. The crowd is quiet now, focused on the work of moving the winner forever up, up, toward the black hole ahead of them, the chamber that is the highest point in their world. They pass through the mouth of the cave and into its cool womb with a collective sigh, grateful to be on level ground. The first people inside stop, as every year, to wait for those behind them, to wait until the entire island, or most of them anyway, has assembled in the amphitheater of the cavern. While they wait, they peer reverently into the dark, trying to make out the forest of statues as their eyes adjust. These statues are metal, but the dust of the cave has dulled their luster somewhat, for they are also quite ancient. They aren't arranged, other than that they all face the mouth of the cave, as if to mirror the islanders waiting to enter, they are all a dull silver in color, and there are hundreds of them. Though the pitch darkness at the back of the cave hides most of them from sight, just those that stand close enough to the front to be viewed are impressive in their number. All kinds of people are represented. The statues are as varied and eclectic as the island people themselves. One would think that the people depicted in the statues had nothing in common, but the growing crowd at the mouth of the cave knows better. They have one thing in common, at least. These are the winners. These are the champions of the island. Each statue, the perfect likeness of one of the island's many great artists and spiritual visionaries. At the base of each, the shell of the winner sits, covered with thick blankets of dust and cobweb. Oh, the crowd thinks, to be immortalized in this hall of wonders. This year's winner gazes at the statues in the dusky light and she begins to weep again. She clutches her shell to her chest with both arms, like a little girl hugging a doll. Her eyes become glassy with tears of joy and she bounces on top of her carrier's shoulders, wordlessly urging them forward faster. As one in their wonder and awe, the crowd swims through the cool of the cave towards the back where the throne awaits. What they call a throne is not a chair, as you might think of one. The throne is a ring of stone columns, each the size of a man. They rise toward the invisible cave ceiling until they disappear into dusk. Each is worn smooth by thousands of years, 
millions of hands that have touched them, hoping for some feeling of the sacred and divine. The circle described by these stalagmites is ten feet in diameter, and the floor of the cave there has become bowl-shaped from eons of use. An ancient iron grating is set in the very center, thickened with rust but strong as ever. This place, the very center of the throne, is the holiest of places to the people of the island. This is the blessed circle that may only be inhabited once each year and only by the winner of the festival. And so the people slowly lower the winner from their shoulders and set her small wizened feet on the floor of the cave. Weakly, the woman pads forward, still clutching her shell with pride. As she approaches the circle of columns, she absently reaches out to someone nearby, handing them her shell, that glorious opus, to be placed with her statue once the time comes. She does not look at them, or at her shell, but fixes her eyes instead at the center of the ring. When she passes through the line of columns into where the ground begins to slope down toward the grating, she feels a sudden electricity, a rush of fulfillment, and she actually gasps. She almost collapses then, but steadies herself on one of the great stones. Her doubts fade away. It is just as she expected. Winning the festival has fulfilled her, and she had no need to doubt. Now she sets one of her calloused feet onto the rough grating and hums at the cold, damp feeling. Grinning, she moves to the very center of the grating, turns to face the crowd so that they might see some of her contentment. The grating sinks slightly, as if she has pressed a button. Above, there is a familiar rumble, too large and too mighty to be anything but divine quickly followed by the hiss of liquid slithering downwards from the plumless dark above her. The cave warms several degrees in an instant, and in the seconds before the molten ore hits her, the winner wonders what position she ought to stand in for her statue. A few dignified poses flash through her mind in a rush. Why hadn't she thought of this before? In the end, she manages to raise one hand to her chin and purses her lips in an expression of deep thought. Then the liquid stone pours down onto her, melting her flesh and burning her hair and boiling her eyes in an instant, enveloping her in a fire that will vaporize her body, leaving nothing but a thinker-shaped hole when the rock finally cools and the others crack it open to pour in the silver that will become her statue, her trophy. She screams, of course, as she dies, sings out a single note of her own death song before her throat is burnt to nothing. But that song is lost in the hiss of molten ore. Like the Susurration song, her death note too is sad and plaintive, but it doesn't go like anything, because after all, it's only a scream. When high tide comes in, most of the people on the island are sleeping. The festival is finally over, and the warm afternoon seems an ideal time for a nap in the curve of a palm tree's back or on the clean white sheet of a hidden beach. No one, of course, sleeps on the big beach. The stink of the susurration meat is nearly overpowering, and shards of red shell still lie half-buried in the sand, ready to cut any unwary foot. There are a few islanders, however, who linger at that beach, 
although not to sleep. Every year, it seems, there are some of them, but always fewer and fewer, mostly old ones. They gather around the white pile, holding their noses. This year, there is even a young girl. The mass, almost ten feet high, still quivers, although if there is a breeze, it is too slight to be felt. A few items stick out of the pile, partially melted now, but identifiable. A bit of kite string, a child's doll, the taste of raspberries. The old folks seem to not know what to do with themselves as they watch the pile get washed back out to sea. The little girl, braver than the others, makes an exploratory poke with her finger, which comes away slimy. Keeping her nose pinched, she starts to gingerly dig through a few of the dead creature's remains, then stops, looking embarrassed. The old people don't try to stop her, though. They simply stare at the pile, transfixed by reasons they are not able to explain. Those ones will stay with the pile, not knowing why, until it is entirely swallowed by the hungry waves. In an hour, the last of the pile is gone, and they wander back to their homes, never talking to one another, scarcely aware that the others even exist, choking on words they've lost the tune to. They arrive at their villages as if from a daze, just in time for supper and sleep. If they complain of a mysterious melancholy, their families assure them that they are simply overtired and need to take care of themselves better. After a dreamless night, they usually forget the gleaming pile, and perhaps they forget, too, how each gray body seemed to slide into the water a little too easily, seemed to flick or twitch or glimmer in just such a way as to make you think that there might be some life left in the susurrations after all. Eventually, they even forget the queer thoughts they had, the inexplicable urges to dive into the stinking pile and dig for treasures with all their might, to follow the gray, slimy things into the soul-blue sea, to sing with them, to sink with them, to help them find new, glorious shells in the deepest, darkest waters. You're all legs, though. I'm all legs. You a leggy exactly. man. Also, I even sit like, like I could be this tall, but I sit like that. Yeah, and I am like, so you know, retentive about my posture. You have very excellent posture. Thank you. Let's start with that. Welcome yeah. to Tales from the Pit. <laughs> Is it the weight of crushing grief that makes you sit? Oh, so upright and perfect. Do you know what it is? It's seeing old people with hunched over and like not being able to walk. That I'm so scared of that. It may that is what honestly what makes me put my shoulders back is because I know that that happens mm-hmm. so gradually. Yes. And then all of a sudden, literally, you're bent like a question mark and you can't. Your spine is just like that. Oh now. yeah. No offense thrown at those in- affected, but when mm-hmm. you see like an elderly person who's like, you know how villains in movies always look up the, at the top of their eyes to be evil? <laughs> yeah. There's also elderly people who have to do that to look they're, straight. Because they're literally the top half of their back is at a 90 degree angle. And I always come from, this is my, I have a strong denial problem. I always go, that person must have some special spine problem. But Yeah, and I mean, that's just like. It's no, probably not true. No shade to uh, people with spine problems. Right. Like literally, if there's anything I can do in my power to. <laughs> to to prolong my spine health, I'm going to try sure. and do it. That's why I do crossword puzzle every day. I do Sudoku all the time. Oh, nice. I don't know if they've done research like data on that because it's a newer... 
well, it's newer to America, but uh, they say writer, the profession, like writing is the most likely to stave off dementia. So that's my real goal. Good to know. Katie Willard is here. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it's so good to have you. It's so good to be here. Last time we had you was for two frame rates, and I'm not sure if either's come out yet. No, Divine Series of the Yaya Sisterhood did, but to no tweet or anything, and I was like, wait, did this come out? And then I searched your thing and found it. We don't always promote. I'm sorry. (laughs) I did on Twitter, and then I think you guys retweeted it. It did the same amount of traffic, so my word means nothing to the fans. (laughs) Jamie Loftus, we just had on. Oh, fantastic! She has debilitating spine problems. Oh boy, that she's outgrown, but she did. did I mean, I can't even. Her imagine. childhood stories are scoliosis and hilarious. stuff pre pre growth spurts. All <laughs> yeah, that exactly. is just like mm. you know, it's pretty insane for a child to like or a teen to bear. Definitely, alongside being a teen. Oh yeah, you know, <laughs> which is also very difficult. So neither of us is where we want to be in our careers. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the topic today. Yay! (laughs) The topic today is something that I think could end up being inside baseball, but I don't think really because I think everyone understands having childhood dreams and ambitions and struggling to reach them and reaching a point of adulthood. Well, I don't know if you do. Maybe maybe that's my question. Right. Because I can think of some people who don't agree with me that it's necessary. But I feel like it's an inevitable part of growing up to realize that life doesn't owe you anything and there's no guarantee that will happen and no one gives a shit. Right. <laughs> um, do you know, I, I kind of believe the same thing, mm-hmm. um, but uh, not in a... It's not as crushing. It's more of a freedom. Okay. Um, and I think like in, as in terms of this being inside baseball, like it's just anybody who wants to do a creative or, or off the beaten path has passions that are not banking or highly law. competitive, right? Like, you know, or things that have like a setup track. Oh, I want to work with the gorillas in the Amazon. Only a few people are going to get to do right. that. Or yeah. like just general point A to point B, mm-hmm. like set out kind of timeline careers, yeah. which uh, as uh, you know, as of now, I feel like that's not as much of a thing anymore. Yes. And I know there's lots of people who I'm, I'm sure there are lots of people who weren't raised to feel that, Oh, that's going to happen. Right. But I definitely was raised with the ethos. You can be whatever you want when you grow up, if you work hard enough. Yeah. And I think a lot of people in our generation were, and that's not true. Like, why did that become a trend to tell your kid that? Well, it's, I think it's an <laughs> overcorrect of our parents from their parents being like shitty and not supporting them in their dreams to be like, I'm going to support everything, which I still think needs to happen. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's like a dose of practicality that was never like added to that, yeah. you know, which is that, you know, you need to be financially self-supporting. You need to like sometimes do work that is not necessarily what you want to do and if it's in service of you being able to move forward with your passions then that's great right Mm -hmm. like I don't think that part of it was added so now you have a bunch of people who are like okay like I'm following my dreams but like what what else because it's not linear yeah you know and then you feel kind of like what the fuck do I do yeah and not even just practically I feel like it was a big deal for me to get used to emotionally that there's no time limit on anything and no guarantees on anything. 
because so at first I was like, oh, this is going to work out because I have a big heart and I saw Dead Poet Society. <laughs> and then after eight years, I'm like, oh, this isn't going to work out because I'm the greatest artistic tragedy that's ever existed. <laughs> like, And it's some perverse point. And then after 10 years, I'm like, oh, no, just no one cares in particular and it may work out or not. <laughs> I feel like it's it's being in acceptance. That's just generally That's, yeah, what it reaching is. Reaching acceptance. It's yeah. just acceptance about the fact about what you want to do, why you're doing it, right? Because mm-hmm. if if you're like there are going to be accolades or there's going to be X, Y, and Z at the end of this journey, right. you're going to be let down. One of my favorite quotes ever is my serenity is inversely proportional to my expectations, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, it's not like think everything's going to suck, but it's like if I just show up and do the work and put one foot in front of the other, I'm going to get somewhere else. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, I don't necessarily know where that is, but if I'm not happy might be currently. to here instead of yes. like a step upward. Yeah. And that's the thing is like a lot of, at least for me career wise, whereas like, I don't know what is going on for my career but I'm okay. I've reached a peace with it that I've mm. never had before. But like, how recently did that happen? Um, like two years ago. Oh, good job. When I started That's producing, <laughs> well, because it wasn't what I wanted you can to make do. Ends meet, no matter what, it, it's a weird convergence of things okay. uh, for me. And a big part of it was removing the box from myself of like I'm an actor. If I anything I did that wasn't acting made me feel bad then. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I was like, I'm not actively working towards this thing I want to do. Yeah. And once I just went, I'm an intelligent, nice uh, individual who has (laughs) an array of skills. I'm going to say yes to things that sound and feel good, whether or not they fit in that box. And not feel bad about it. Yeah, because that's the trick i know a lot of our director friends who feel like it's a failure to do any to like produce especially if they went to a school that cost eighty thousand dollars and there's that's the thing is like there's so much more weight to it than Mm -hmm. than that for but for me you know i have normal college debt i guess but like the emotional thing seems more important than the money not to downplay the pressure of having a bunch of student loans (laughs) but to me it was a big fucking deal to uh realize that hard work doesn't equate to success automatically right Right. or even it depends on like your historical context if you're a person who's held down by the system it more likely than won't won't equate like to won't or sorry more likely won't than will, will. Yeah. equate to like a fair payout from the system, so to speak. And uh, at least in America at this time, it seems to me, all the people who have made it have big legs up all usually. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean give up, but it means... Be aware and yeah. know that things may come slowly or not at all. Because I became self-loathing over the idea that I must not be working hard enough because the promise was that like stuff would fall out of the slot machine. Yeah. And I like, I was like, does that mean everyone else is working even harder 
or God loves them more or whatever. And neither of those things are <laughs> right. true. And of course, there's people working harder, getting less out of the system. And there are people working less that are getting more out of the system. Yeah, Katie. What? I work hard. <laughs> but do you know what I mean of like it... it it's cultivated this culture of burn yourself out yep. and that and that is not good i like even if you do make some steps forward in that period it's like then you reach this new plateau this new interesting place that you're at in your career and you're fucking exhausted and you're not happy and you might be ill because that happens a lot too like you've done some irreparable damage well it's always and it's always more complex than you thought i think enough movies and songs have taught us this but when you feel it for yourself it's true like of course i know there's many writers who are like but you were a big wheel at the cracker factory meaning you worked to cracked isn't that satisfying i was like no it's not at, not even close right because like, we're to always what I thought, set out to do um but then to me like i i love I, there was a party i went to joss whedon was incidentally at <laughs> and uh, no one approached him. And then the hosts who knew him, who like got invited him, were like, yeah, Joss was really depressed. No one approached him. He's a very lonely man and he hates what he has to do at Marvel. And like writing Avengers really scooped his soul <laughs> out. And I was like, writing Avengers? That's what fucking everyone wants. Is he not happy? But and they're like, no, he wants to write even more clever movies he thought of. And I'm like, that makes sense. I just thought based on the sheer success scale, he had to be happy. All the problems. Because he achieved the things. <laughs> all the problems that we have currently will be amplified when we get to the place we think we want to be. The same or worse. Yeah. Yeah. There's it's no, it's yeah. just, it, it, they don't go away. And like, that's been my, part of my thing is just staying present with my feelings and my fit. Try and working on those mm -hmm. like, anxieties and things on this smaller scale which is still far bigger than my scale was sure five years ago okay so that hopefully every time i like level up a little bit mm -hmm. that i'm not completely overwhelmed because that's part of it too is like as you move forward you have more responsibility you have more it's just your life gets bigger mm -hmm. and it's especially a, if you end up like creating other humans yeah which i'm like getting close to can't imagine yeah um so what do you do that works for you for because you said in the last two years it's become a lot easier and so like what are your techniques what are you into meditation cognitive behavioral therapy i pray a lot okay i talk on a group level about what i'm feeling yeah. with other like-minded people yeah, me too uh a variation a 12-step okay. variation sure sure um about like a square dancing thing <laughs> 12 steps oh my god and yeah just kind of keeping my expectations low and just saying yes to the things that sound interesting because mm -hmm. you don't know where anything's gonna lead like how you're going to get to your the next place. I guess what I'm asking is if you develop the ability to keep your expectations low using techniques and practice or if just enough things fell apart. Enough things fell apart. Be okay. There's nothing you can do. So to I'm like, like trying to help our audience, but I don't know if it works for every discipline, but in our discipline, and this is true for me too, uh, like a big opportunity will come along and Jen will say what's new and I'll say, you know, this movie with Paramount, 
might happen. It looks good. And she's like, our lives are different now. Everything's different. And I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. Let's just wait. Yeah. And then two weeks later, I'm like, that thing didn't happen. And she's like, that's devastating. And I'm like, <laughs> you'd think so, but I don't care anymore. Do you know what's so funny? <laughs> Same thing happens with my, my boyfriend, Mike, is I have started auditioning again for commercials. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm like, yeah, I got an audition today. He's like, oh, but it's, what's it for? And I'm like, oh, it's a shoe company. Yeah. And he's like, oh my God, that's so awesome. Like, I'm so excited for you. And like, I love. You're Colin Kaepernick. That's great news. <laughs> but I love that support. So don't yeah. get, let's not get it twisted. Like right. having somebody who's supportive of everything I'm doing and like, he visualizes yes, me in every commercial. But I'm literally I lost like, the cheese it's account and they're like, Oh my god, are you okay? No, I'm literally like, <laughs> I don't care. Like you can't care going into a commercial audition. Literally, you just have to walk in and you're what they want or you're not. It has very little to do with like ability and everything to do with are you what the the client sees in well, their commercial head. audition especially so. Yes. Yeah. And that's all I'm doing yeah, currently. Yeah. But like so I very much am just like I'm not counting on it. I'm not whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's been a lot more of an enjoyable experience this time around okay. because when I was auditioning for commercials five years ago or four years ago, I was so thirsty. I was broke. Mm-hmm. I was working 8 million different jobs and oh my God, a, a, a $500 non-union yeah. web commercial yeah. would would solve all my problems. So it's impossible not to get excited on a callback, even though that still means you're only like one of 12. So, yeah. yeah, unless you're on a veil, yeah. really don't plan for anything. <laughs> right. Because yeah. that means it's between you and like one or two other people. Mm-hmm. That's like, that's Joe when you Hansen's can... Scarlett in the mix somewhere. <laughs> well, that's when you got to like look at your calendar and be like, okay, these are the shoot dates. Let's make sure I'm free just in case. Sure. That's like as far ahead in planning yeah, as yeah. you would get. You know, mm-hmm. but it is that thing of like, I just, and to be honest, that that attitude is actually the right attitude I've learned to go into commercial audi- uh, auditions with. Yeah. It's just like, hi, I'm me. I got, my meter is running out. Can I go? Okay, bye. And I then like leave. I just was wondering if we could provide tips on how to like discover that without getting burned a bunch of times, but maybe we don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, on, I honestly believe that you need to experience the thing. Failure a lot. Not a lot, but you just need to explore. <laughs> you need to like explore what actually happens with failure. Because in our head, right. I think we feel like, oh, failure is this world shattering, like everything falls apart. I can't do. But it, it isn't. It's right. my reality is slightly different, um, but everything's pretty much the same and life will go on. It's a great attitude. I, there's still moments I wish I had had more warning about. Like graduating from UCSD. I don't remember his name. Do you remember the head of playwriting instructor? Darko? No. Uh, Directing. That was directing. That's directing. Yeah. Anyway, Uh. I shouldn't even name him, I guess, because I'm going to throw shade. But (laughs) uh, I wanted to be a professional playwright was my ideal dream. Mm -hmm. And at the end of four years, I went to him and was like, you know, there was no like business of playwriting class. Yeah. I have these scripts. What's the submission process? And he was like, why do you think I teach playwriting at UCSD? There is no submission process. That job doesn't exist. You're an idiot. And I was like, well, why didn't someone tell me that in freshman year? (laughs) Not everyone should teach guys. That's That's what I've, there's, 
you know, yeah. two, two types of folks who go at it, people who earnestly feel a calling in their heart to pass on the knowledge that they have, uh, they have learned and the experience that they have learned to other people who may go farther than them. And they don't care because it's all about mm-hmm. communicating. And then there are the other ones who are like, yeah, fucking whatever. Oh my God, dude. <laughs> I think our profession might have the highest percentage of people who are like, in my mind, misguided. Because I understand that a lot of movies now are just fun and popcorn. But there's still a lot of craft, especially if you're counting effects, art direction, costuming. And it's a medium. Like painting is a medium. And I came here to like be a part of that artistic process. And I say that to people. I think the majority of people in Hollywood are like, what what are you talking about? Like they are not. Their goal is not to be a part of an important artistic accomplishment that literally didn't occur to them they just thought it would be a fun job to be a movie star yep which is crazy and do you want to know why they succeed (laughs) is because they don't don't give a shit they don't all but that's part of it is like if you have that kind of like walking into a commercial audition or walking into a meeting or pitching or whatever (laughs) this is fun so much of it is just like hey yeah like this is i i'm bringing i know what i'm bringing to the table like here's my idea you're not into it? Whatever. Okay, bye. Nice to meet you. And maybe they don't work with you then, but in two years, they're going to be like, you remember that girl who was like weirdly happy and like she had that idea about that thing? Do you want to give her a call? Yeah, let's give her right. a call. And that of, happens more often than of not. Of course. Yeah, when I get shot down, I go, well, that's a bad idea and I should never share it with anyone oh, else. I'll Michael. be embarrassed. No, but these people will pitch a bad idea 20 times. Like the guy who will ask every woman out at a mall and one says yes and he's like, I'm a stud. And you're like, no, that chick just wanted to get laid and doesn't care. Yeah. Um, Like they'll pitch a bad idea 50 times to get it made and they'll be like, how does this shit get made? Oh, because they pitched it 50 times and they have no shame and, and don't failure, care that it's a bad idea. And their failure didn't end them. <laughs> right, They exactly. kept fucking going. And I yeah. think so much of the time is like that we get this failure and it takes us out of the game Mm -hmm. either for days or weeks or months or forever yeah you pack up you go home you don't you know you decide not to play anymore and Mm -hmm. when you when you cut it off finally when you're like nope i'm done Mm -hmm. then it is done yeah then you're done was it like was it just a moment for you like a singular moment where you were like this shit won't bother me anymore and you evolved like a pokemon okay i um do you know so a lot of people have like a um, issue with taking a creative job that is not in the field that they are in, right? Like it's it's a waste right. of time. Yep. It's whatever their energies could be spent elsewhere. For me, I hit a point where uh, I my engagement had dissolved. Mm-hmm. I was homeless <laughs> uh, and I was sleeping on couches and I had always had like 18 part-time jobs. And I went, okay, I want to live alone. I want to be financially self-supporting. So mm. I got to get a full-time job. Yeah. Necessity, right? I was like, I can't fuck, I can't fucking do so this. So you're your own impatient partner who goes, look, I value your dream, but you have to <laughs> but pay But you got to fucking pay bills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I did earnestly go like, okay, I'm putting, pa- I'm putting a pause on things. Mm-hmm. Like just because I need to live, right? Yeah. And... My friend Joey worked at this, uh, this, uh, and was that like a big wave of sadness or was it not a big no, deal? It was just necessity. It was, right. I was very much in survival mode of like, 
It wasn't like I'm done it was just like, acting. I have it to was make money, just, so I'm gonna do this now. Yeah, yeah. And I'm gonna t- and I'm gonna do what I gotta do. You're not depressed enough for this show. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Should I be? I mean, no, I'm it, sorry. It was I'm a, sorry. Your life is not harder, Katie. No. My life was very hard for a very long time. Well, you're handling it too well. Thanks. It's inspirational and boring. No, God I'm just damn kidding. It. Continue. Uh, <laughs> but no, like I, I, Joey had asked me before, like, do you want to submit for this, mm. this writing position? And yeah. before when he asked me six months prior, he was like, do you want to do this? And I was like, I'm focusing on my career, my mm. acting career, and I need to be open and available for auditions. Meanwhile, I was getting nothing. I was not sent out for anything ever, sure. you know, like, but, but the, in my head, I was like, I can't have a full-time job because if I have a full-time job, then I'm not going to be able to, you know, act. So then when he asked me again, I was like, yeah, what do I have to do? <laughs> and so I turned in a thing and I got hired and then I ended up being a copy editor there for like over a year. Mm-hmm. And what that job allowed me to do was, pay my bills, pay my rent, uh, have health insurance for a little bit, like have stability, which I hadn't had in I was LA. Gonna, aside from that, yeah, did you find joy in the job anyway? Yeah, like I just loved being the like, people I worked with. I still don't want to do this forever, but it's, but for I now, got to it's meet so and so, and yeah, exactly. Honestly, because <laughs> yeah. it's like, I'm no one, I mean, honestly, no one was at that job forever because the company laid everybody off because mm-hmm, it was an mm-hmm, online content mm-hmm, company. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think it did a couple. Well, one, my manager was, or I don't know what the VP, I don't know, was a standup. Mm-hmm. So when I had a random audition, he'd be like, yeah, take a long lunch and go. Gotcha. So that hurdle was fucking gone. Yeah. But in my head, I was like, oh, if you have a full-time job, you can't audition. Currently not true either with what mm. I'm doing. Um, but the other thing that it allowed me to do was see what it was like like live the life of someone who could financially support themselves. Oh, right. I think a lot of people are so you used to like doing. Like, I got to pretend I was one of those people that has a normal job. <laughs> but I think so many of us in creative positions who work 18 part-time jobs don't literally have not experienced being fully financially self-supporting. I'm so used to it. It's all I've ever done that it's weird to me that it's weird to other people. I mean, like we have Jen, a list. Right. Like we're talking <laughs> about having kids and she's like worried about financial stability mm-hmm. and she's a social worker. And I'm like, I'm no offense. Yes. I never know. I could never say what job I'm going to have two years from today, but let's put it this way. Every year that we've both existed on earth, I've made more money than you. So it seems stable enough just to know that I have a set of like, skills. Ladies, I have a set of skills, skills I just left. that are honed enough that someone will pay me to do something. Yes. I'm sure. And she's like, but how can you be so sure? And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you just get used to it. Yeah. Cause she has the exact kind of job where she literally knows what position she's going to fill in six years. Yep. And now. where she's yeah. what her trajectory is. And what is. unless like the political situation radically shifts, like what the benefits will be right. at that level and shit. Yeah. Right. To be able to make those plans for the future. Yeah. So it's it's just as likely that things will blow up in a good way, just as likely as things will explode in a bad way. Like right. it's equal, so why not just go move forward? Yeah. Um All right. Let's I would love to, let's get into your list. My list. So speaking of jobs that either are adjacent or I'm interested in hearing the most separated from like acting. If there's like, 
oh yeah, I was a whale biologist for four months. <laughs> like what's so this is starting, I made a list of all of the jobs that I've had since I moved here, right? So mm-hmm. this doesn't include college. This is like literally... 2008? 2009, I moved nine. to uh, okay. December 26th, the day after okay. Christmas. Oh, um, very specific. And I graduated December 17th. Okay. So I was like, bye. <laughs> I graduated yeah. early. I was like, I'm done. Nice. Um, okay. The first job I had was selling security systems door to door on 100% commission. So it's one of those jobs where like they don't pay you hourly. You only make money if you sell. But how do they make money if it's 100%? Like, oh, not you. I thought you meant you get to keep the full price that the customer. No, it's like my only my only payment is commission. Sounded awesome. I was like, so they gave you free things that you sell and keep all the money. No, it was not that. It was me wandering around downy in the rain, getting door slammed in my face. Would you rather rain or 110 degrees? 110 degrees. Really? I'd rather rain. You know okay. why? Because I um, uh, soggy hems on my pants oh. are the, it's the worst thing and it upsets me. No one buys an alarm from someone with soggy hems. There's that old saying. I was so sad, like a person had slammed a door in my face mm-hmm. and I was sitting on the corner and it was raining and the manager, they would drive up and down the streets to make sure that like, we hadn't gotten murdered. Yeah. Uh, and it was nice in the evening, them. by it's the a way. Good policy. It was in the evening because people were home and the guy like, picks me up and he's like don't tell i can't remember the guy's name like don't tell dave who was the boss he's like, don't tell dave i did this he drives me to a um diner mm-hmm. and he's like here's the deal you're a smart lady you paid attention in training i think you i earnestly think you can do this and i yeah. believed him and he was like here's ten dollars because we couldn't have our purses on us sure because they didn't want us fucking around on our phone. I had no phone either, by Call the way. Call your mom and tell her you'll never be an alarm salesman. <laughs> He's like, get a piece of pie, get a cup of coffee, oh. take a moment, dry off, regroup, and meet me at the, you know, at this this corner and we'll go together. And then I quit the next day. Okay. I, I got laryngitis and like the, the female manager was like, she pulls up the car and I'm like, I can't talk. And she was like, get in. And she was like exasperated with me because I lost my voice. Uh-huh. She dropped me off at a jack in the box. Three hours later, she picked me up because she had my purse. Oh. And then I drove back and to home because I was working with my roommate at Why'd the time. Why'd she want to make sure that you spent three hours at the jack in a box? Well, because she years. had to keep driving up and down the street oh, for everybody. Oh, she just everybody. didn't have time to take you home. I see. Yeah, because yeah. it was in Downey or wherever. Did you get some El Monte. Uh, 99 cent monster tacos up in there? I didn't have my wallet. God I didn't have my purse. It. it was very kooky. Because um, I could nurse a couple tacos for three hours, I think, at jack in a box easily. Yeah, I just was <laughs> sitting staring at the wall because I had nothing. Oh, no. And then the next day I called in and was like, Actually, my roommate and I both worked to the job. Mm-hmm. And so she, we drove together. And on the way home, I was like, I'm quitting tomorrow. And she was like, no, you can't leave me and here. And the manager was like, you are a smart woman. You did pay attention. Quitting is a good idea. I called and was just like, I can't. And they're like, but yeah. you're one of the best. And I was like, I don't, how? Like, I sold zero I sold things. nothing. Like, yeah, but you didn't get robbed. That's better than usual. <laughs> I've done seven days of training, too, for wow. free. Yeah. That's one of those things that only happens when you're 21. And Do you need a week of training to ask people if they want to buy an alarm system? It was sales. It was like a script and you had to do a certain specific set of movements with it. It was like all psychologically like manufactured to get people to let you into their home. Jab them here in the solar plexus. Well, they are days. Sell them. There was literally a thing where you go, thanks. You look down, you wipe your foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, and step across the threshold with your right foot and not making eye contact and people will get out of your way. 
so you can walk into their house. Oh, that's like a way to say, oh, do you mind if I come in? Thanks. And not get an answer and just get in. Yeah. What a fucking. It, was, right. it was very gross. Next job. <laughs> uh, I was uh, an eyeglass salesperson uh-huh. uh, for four days of training. Wearing and very sharp eyeglasses. That makes sense. Thank you. This is this. Is, these are Warby Parker. The clear frames. Um, but. I got commission. That was an hourly job that I would get paid commission as well on mm-hmm. the sales that I made. And what happened was I made like $600 in sales, like in three days, Whoa. but I was training yeah. and they're like, Oh, you still need to meet the boss. And I was like, okay. And then I went down to San Diego and they were like, we want you to meet the boss now. And I'm like, I'm on the five freeway. Like I can't. And they're like, well, this doesn't look very good to the boss. No need to come in tomorrow. So I like worked 24 hours for what? them and they didn't pay me any commission. And I filled out all the tax paperwork. A lot of these are like... A scarecrow we use as an excuse to not pay people their commissions. (laughs) A lot of it is just like, I'm a dumb 21-year-old and you learn pretty fast. uh, No, it's that people take advantage of 21-year-olds who have a lot of energy to do stuff for free. And uh, Heed us, 21-year-olds. Your physical labor is worth money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You deserve to be paid for what you're doing. Uh, I was a specialist at the Apple store on the Third Street Promenade. I did that for a little bit. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a specialist. It's a salesperson. Oh, okay. I was, just, I was just a floor person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're called specialists. All right. Uh, and that one was always weird because people would come <laughs> in from Cracked. Like oh. cat or cracked fans would come in and be like, can we get a picture? And I was like, okay. And I'd like cover my little apple on my chest and like put my mm-hmm. thing behind me. They'd be like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, working. <laughs> like I have a, I need oh my to God, pay my rent. People who think. You make no money working for the internet, they're like, guys. You made an internet sketch that has 1 million views. So you have $1 million. You're like. Not how not, it works. Not true. Yeah. Not at all. I do sometimes think about if I got paid a penny for every view of every video I've ever been in. Per view? Yeah, but then I get sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's be a more fair money chunk than of you change. actually made. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, and but, yeah, Apple wouldn't like the logo. You'd get fired for that reason. Yeah. I thought you meant cracks people like Soren would come in and go, excuse me, specialists. <laughs> Fix my iMac, and he'd be like, Soren, it's me. And he'd be like, Tut tut, just fix my iMac. Honestly, I would love it if I loved it when people I knew happened to come into the yeah. store. And it was funny because it happened to be like across the alley from the cracked, right? Oh, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. office. Um, I came in at one point just to say hi, though. I don't think I got anything. <laughs> Sorry. Thanks, man. No, it's no okay. commission. No commission anyway no commission at Apple for stores. You. Yeah. Um, I worked at Urban Outfitters uh-huh. uh, as a salesperson cleaning up the. Um, the dressing rooms, mm-hmm. which honestly for me taught me to always hang things up and be really nice to the people in the dressing room. Oh, yeah. I just was like, this is insane and people are garbage. And they just, anytime I saw a 16 year old walking up with like 30 items of clothing, I just wanted to hit them. Man, really? Oh. Because mm-hmm. you knew it would who. just be in like a, a pile in the f- fucking. But a particular girlfriend of mine. <laughs> Always says, that's the job. They won't, there's nothing else for them to do all day. It's their job to put things back. Yeah, but it's not their job to like. Like they'll be bored otherwise. This gives them a thing to do. No, that is not true. We have plenty of other things to do. Oftentimes you're like sent to, like it's part of your shift of like going around the floor to also go to the dressing rooms. Okay, in her defense, we were at an express men's at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday 
And there were like four salespeople, two cashiers, and we were the only customers. I mean, I wouldn't be so like, she was like egregiously it's a thing for them to do. shitty, but like, I guess no, that's I, better. I blew my nose in all the clothes. And it put nice pair of slacks. <laughs> I said, these are for you. I mean, that's the thing. If any of the stores on the Third Street Promenade are a barrage constantly from open Urban to Outfitters, close. Yeah. Like that is, there are always people there. So just yeah. assume those people are like, I just fucking, uh, sure. hang stuff. Um, I worked as a crew leader for the United States Census Bureau. Okay. Uh, so that's almost. I remember that. Yeah. All, eight, well, now it's uh, eight, so, almost nine years ago. So Snoopy, just constantly asking everyone their family size and shit. You know, I, I lived in West Adams at the time uh-huh. and I learned a lot because the way it works is when you apply to work for the census, they, they put you in hubs near where you live, right? Uh. So that travel costs, that's like a way they keep travel costs down is because you're only enumerating people right. in your neighborhood. And so I learned a lot from older people who had lived in that neighborhood for forever about like what it's like in that neighborhood. And the problem is, is that like, understandably people don't trust the government so when you come mm-hmm. to their door and you're like hi we need we have some questions for the census bureau they're like get the fuck out of my house and i'm like yeah i get it but then what happens is we don't have an accurate count of who's in those houses and then that's how and then you yes and that's yeah. how you get money for things that's not accounting for the fact that people are the the government is racist and and lies about probably, numbers and shifts everything around right but it's not yeah. helping you know <laughs> sure. but i learned a lot about like where I lived and and what, like, and is that interesting to you? Yeah. Okay. I loved West. I loved that's living in West Adams. Interesting to me that that's interesting to you because not to me. That's yeah. Like someone was telling you about the history of my neighborhood. I'd be like, look, just how many other human beings did you produce in your time living in this <laughs> room? It's all I really need, man. <laughs> but I know, yeah, you're very into architectural history as well. And I mean, not just history. that. It was like. And I guess like no people. Honestly, it's the most polite fucking place I've ever lived in Los Angeles. Like people hold doors open. No, West Adams. West Adams. Okay. Yeah. People would like say hi and smile at you on the street and like not in a weird way. Like, Mm. hey, what's up? And like, you know, open the door for you walking into the chase and like, oh, you go first or like whatever. You know, like everybody was just really chill and nice and you could tell that people had lived there for a long time. It's not really a place where they're like people are in and out and in and out. For me, that was Dearborn, Michigan. You oh, ever been? No. Everyone's so nice in Dearborn. <laughs> You're like, what is this? What's yeah, in the exactly. water here? All right. Keep on with the list. Because I, uh, I also want to know if you ever like developed an area of expertise. Like, uh, did you go back to clothing sales ever? Or so far, it's all different, different, it's all, different, it's, different. It's all different. Uh I was an administrative assistant to, to taxonomists. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was for Demand Media. Separate of Cracked, I like worked in a different department briefly. And then I was so efficient at my job that they ran out of work for me to do and then fired me. Wait, and taxonomist, is that a cool brand name for something? Or do you mean the people who determine like the phylum of newly discovered animals? I mean, not of animals, but it's the they're the ones or plants who or discover what? buckets for what on a website like okay it's these areas and then these have these buckets Web in them and then you put yes. yeah. I guess that's cool. <laughs> Animals is much cooler though. I was mostly doing like the administrative work and making sure everybody's <laughs> like, like Katie, I discovered a new mammal. It's called Xylophonosaurus. File it under X immediately. And I was like, okay, but but first can you file these e how? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Articles. Complaint tickets Please. need to be processed. <laughs> um 
Yeah, and that was... I like admin. Mm-hmm. There's something about it that is soothing to me. It's pretty meditative. The power. The power of administration. Uh, I was a production assistant for an automotive marketing company. Did a lot of packing and shipping of educational materials and then like producing... Mm. Uh, training seminars and things for different like every car company works with like a marketing company that will facilitate people teaching their like seller sellers about cars or about the like new, new models, models and sure, stuff like okay. that and so it was our job to like facilitate them going to the different dealerships and like having the right training materials and brochures a lot and of whatnot uh <laughs> yeah and ipads we had oh like information on ipads and all that sort of stuff and uh and if one broke you could repair it because if your apple experience i couldn't but that did help <laughs> that did i think keep me on that job is oh. because i did know how to use ipads and i knew how to like install stuff mm-hmm. and and do what needed to be done um, I was a data ent- I was did data entry for a craft brewing application. Okay. Uh, I was a nanny to a lot of babies. What's a craft brewing application? It's an app where you could scan the barcode of any beer of oh. a craft brew and see whether or not it was actually a uh, unique brewer or if that brewer is owned Relabeling. by one of the big right brewing companies. Yeah, because when we were just in Belize, we discovered Marie Sharp's hot sauce, which is my new favorite hot sauce. Mm. But it's also sold many, many places, which is different names on the label. You know, like it's rebottled by companies. Yeah, I found out that's huge in hot sauce. Did they just slap another label on it? Right, like if you go to a hot sauce store that has a shelf with thousands of hot sauces. They're all pretty much And there's one that's called like Zombie Voodoo Hot Sauce. It's just Cholula with a different label on it. You know, it could (laughs) be. Yeah, there's only so many... Yeah, exactly. So many formulations for hot sauce. Um, uh, yeah, I nannied a lot. That's been a consistent watching a lot of babies, which I'm really grateful for because I know how to deal with babies. Um, I know how to deal with babies. I do know how to <laughs> deal with babies. Uh, I was a chauffeur to the son of a television mogul. Can you say who? No. Okay. I don't want to. They were a perfectly nice family. But I would pick the son up from from his school, which was in Santa Monica, and I would we would drive and I would drive <laughs> him and we would get a snack and then I would drive him to Aaron tutoring. Spelling. No. Damn it. Okay, that's my only guess. <laughs> I would drive him to tutoring and then I'd drive him to the Hollywood Hills where he lived okay. every Tuesday and Thursday. Did you work on him a little bit though? Like you really need an alarm system, dude. On the yeah, way, and this iPad yeah. and all this. Stuff. <laughs> he was a weird, lovely kid. You got a you lot know? of targets, you know. Your level of fame. You need an alarm system. I mean, the best part of that, honestly, was when they would go. When the parents would travel out of town, mm-hmm. they would have me stay with him and his older sister. Like, just make sure they didn't burn the house down. Because they were all, like, in school. You know, he was yeah. in an upper middle school, and she was in high school. And she drove, so I didn't even have to worry about her. But, like, getting to stay in this beautiful home. Oh, yeah. In the hills. Brett Raider's parents' house has Emmys on the mantelpiece. That is dad one for working on Star Trek The Next Generation. That's am- I didn't know that. And I would just that. sit and stare at them. <laughs> like, your dad's so cool. He's like... I guess he's just like a computer graphics technician. And I'm like, but for Star Trek, Star the next Trek. generation. This is so important. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. I did the packing and shipping slash customer service slash hand modeling for oh. a nail wrap company. Nice. Um, I was a personal organizer. I can see it. Yes. Hello. Very shapely hands. Although now I have. I always up. thought I would be a good male hand model. I have you very do like have nice hands. I like look. Oh I, my god! I, my fingers look like I should be able to play the piano well, but I You've can't. You've got good fingernails. Right. You don't have hairy knuckles. 
No, no. I don't think I've ever looked at your hand. I've known like you. I've known you for eleven figures. years. Uh, oh. um, I can't now because I got burns from. We should launch a comedic eyes. hand modeling series. Yes, that will. That definitely is a niche that ad needs sales. to be filled. I can hear the ad sales for sure. Avalanche Rings yeah. and like uh, lotion soap. Burn ward. Yeah, get some. Uh, what's the skin? What's oh, glove the? companies. Ooh. I mean, right there. See, I got weird nail beds, though. That's my problem. My What's nails, weird about my nail, them? They, my nails grow, like, if they're any longer than this, they start to fan out. That's disgusting. It's no, very it's... weird looking. Honestly, I, like, I, I don't have a lot of problems with my body, but uh-huh. that's one oh. where I'm, like, really icked out by well, I was it. just kidding. I'm sorry. It's, no, it's okay. No one will notice it but you. It's fine. <laughs> now everybody's going to look at my weird fan fingers. You're going to be on... Yeah, wikinailsbeds.com now. <laughs> I don't have a, I don't think, last time I checked, I don't think I have a very good WikiFeet rating. I wish I had a WikiFeet entry because I have like, my big toe on my left foot has no nail. Really? I have giant calluses so in various places. Extremities. <laughs> I have a toe that broke and grew back crooked. Like my WikiFeet entry would just be like these big, disgusting, Oof. gnarly stump feet. And I really want someone to... Get on to that. do that for well, you to masturbate to those yeah 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 <laughs> like get into it alone somewhere there's in a the foot desert. for every sock exactly every jizz how sock. long is it whoa hey. how long is this goddamn list um we're we're getting there all right let's keep um, tracking okay I was a personal organizer specializing in addressing and disposing of clutter okay <laughs> so I did that for a lot of because that's the thing that I think I'm you, pretty good you mean at garbage man. I think I'm pretty good at like knowing when to push people and knowing when to like re- let let off oh. like in terms of get, getting through a large amount of clutter. Do you ever, do you ever and, work with a hoarder or borderline hoarder on no, that No, because that okay. someone needs to be a... It's a different it job. It needs to be okay. a psychologist doing gotcha. that. But this is like for people who just... You don't know where... The ball needs to start rolling and you don't know where to start and you're just overwhelmed. Things I'm that have sorry. just gotten out of hand. I didn't know that was a thing. You pay someone to come over and be like... Come on, fully functioning adult. We yeah. should, we have to clean up today. Because it's hard. No, that's stupid. Clean up. Just clean up. I mean, honestly, if you got the money <laughs> to throw at it and it makes you do hell it. Give paid. it to the World Wildlife Foundation. It made me able to pay my bills. Sure, so, no, you give know. it to Katie. That's great. Why well, don't do it But if either of my parents found out that I hired someone to come over and help me clean up they'd smack me <laughs> you know, it's but it's so much of it is like a, an anxiety thing right sure. it's just like not knowing where to get started and a lot of the times when i'd work with people i do like a couple sessions and then they just start going and then well, they finish they it their own you just clean up but sometimes you just need help over that that hump you know Man, that first if, hurdle if i had that job i'd come in and just look around with a superior air and go live in it Live in your filth. <laughs> You're welcome. That's that's what I do for them. I mean, I'm sure that would be received very well and you would be paid handsomely. Yes. Same strategy for when I nanny babies. Yeah. Phil. Uh, Phil needs a diaper change. Live in it, Phil. Live in your filth. <laughs> oh, you haven't you haven't really lived until you've changed a blueberry diaper. I'm way I'm I really want to have kids, but I've never changed any baby's diaper and I am scared of it start doing it like when you're with I'm people you know who smells. have babies i don't want to throw up on a baby that's what i'm getting at. well yeah start small <laughs> like your brother has make a baby. them poop just a little bit <laughs> your brother has a baby right yep so like oh, just wait, like wait, wait, be wait. next to him while he does it just to see kind of how things go and like if the smell gets too much you can go away yeah. and then you know whatever but you're 
I would just suggest to anybody, if you want to have kids, just like learn how to do that before. Because like I could not imagine pushing a baby out of my vagina uh-huh. and then like and not and then like being like I have to change a diaper and, and never having done it before, like really Studied. done it. Yeah. You know, like practically actually Oof. done it on a moving baby who has just shit. How scary it must. And I know people deal with it all the time who've had like if you get pregnant early and your parents are dicks about it. And yeah. you don't have training. It's horrifying. And it comes out and they're like, you can go home now. What do I do? Feed it. Keep it alive. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a miracle that not yeah. more babies are dead. Like that is that happened to my grandma. Mm. My uncle had colic. She was 18. And he's like, I don't know. Yeah, the word 18. Colic or and what she's that like, means. I don't know what's happening. My baby can't keep like food down. Yeah. But she was all all by herself because my great grandma was like. Uh, I already raised my children. Uh, good, great. And my yeah. my grandma Suzanne was like, "Oh fuck, I don't, I don't know." Yeah. So I mean, what they do? I mean, he, he survived. I yeah. take it. Good. But like, he just like there's lived sh- through colic yeah. until it went away. And yeah. and there's some dynamics at play now <laughs> yeah, in that yeah. relationship that you know are probably a result of that early stuff. Yeah. It has ripple effects. You want some waffles, honey? I don't know, mom. Did I want colic? <laughs> Untreated colic. I didn't know any better. Oh, my poor uncle. <laughs> um, okay. I was a telemarketer for a nonprofit call center. Fuck you. Uh, oh, nonprofit. That's more forgivable. Okay. Yeah. Not for a thing, <laughs> but, but for a nonprofit. And uh, I remember that there was an older man who had talked about, we were all kind of sharing like our stories and what when we were training and the older guy was like, yeah, you know, I used to write movies and then I... Um, uh, I took a break and then I got, I got cancer. And so the, all of the money that I had saved really went towards my treatment. And then, you know, he's like, now I'm kind of back at square one. And I looked up his name and he was the guy who wrote all dogs go to heaven, which was my favorite oh my childhood God. movie. Uh, and that made me really sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I lived in a really crappy studio apartment in Pomona with like paper thin walls. So you had to negotiate with your neighbors if you were going to even like watch a movie loud. Right. And the neighbor and I were chatting and she's like, Oh yeah, I created and was showrunner of, uh, Erie, Indiana. And I'm like, no, you should have, <laughs> I don't, not a mansion per se. It's just Erie, Indiana. Like a nice townhouse that you But I just graduated off. from college I'm, and it's a crappy studio. Apparently you should live somewhere nicer than this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, ugh. Yeah, uh, it's it's an extreme industry. People largely overestimate how much you make in this industry mm-hmm. because they are rightly aware that if you get a quote unquote big break, you can get paid ten million dollars for a year of work, and it's like, well, that's crazy. But if you never work again, and there's so so many people who just make a living, like I think people don't think that there's like average working poor to lower middle class people in this industry but they're it's the majority of people that was me but i think the minority I, are people who get a big break <laughs> i think i finally went above the poverty line two years ago hooray i made about 12 to 13 grand for the first like yeah. a year for the first three maybe four years i lived here and then Cracked, it started yeah. like inching up but cracked was an object lesson in both because when i got hired for the first four years I was criminally underpaid, mm-hmm. like working 70 hour weeks and making 14 to 15 grand a year. And then by the end, I was making low six figures. Right. 
which felt like overpaid. And I was like, yeah, this is a weird industry where, and I felt like I was doing the same job. So it's just like the pay only has to do with how much money the machine you're tied to is making. Right. It's not like working at the docks where you steadily make more and more money because nope. you earned it. Yeah. It's just a big spinning wheel spinning around. And hopefully the place that you're working for is solvent. is And, and fair. Yeah. Um, or hopefully you say the word like squid boat horror comedy in space in a bar and there's a producer who's like, I want to make that. Here's $10 million because that also happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, there's, and, and I, for me, like, the fact that it can happen is what gives me hope, right? Yeah, sure. it, it couldn't happen. But I'm like, the fact that I know that those things do happen, that it really is random and it can be any combination of things that I couldn't ever put together in my head, like, that gives me solace because I'm just like, okay, then I just, all I have to do is keep showing up. And adjacent stuff is still cool. Nothing in life is usually a waste of time. Um, and I think if you're too focused on an overriding calling, if you're someone who has an overriding calling, you feel like anything else is a waste of time. Mm -hmm. So like in the strictest sense, I've only wasted time <laughs> because I want to make, I want to co-direct feature films that are released in theaters. Um, and if I had predicted the path, I wouldn't have said sketches for a long time first, but now, uh, you know, after hours exists and I have that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and even if it was unrelated to the industry, like you said, you now have, I'm sure if you had asked yourself the day you graduated from college, like December 18th, uh, 17th, but whatever. Sorry. Very close. Actually. <laughs> Do you want to, uh, now spend a bunch of time taking care of other people's babies? You'll have the valuable knowledge of how to care for children. You're like, that's stupid though. That would be a waste of my time. I'm doing this thing. Yep. But it's not true. Life is going to make you wander your path. And that's the thing. Like when I listen to interviews by like incredibly creative, successful people, most of them are like, yeah, I waited tables for like 18 years and then I was auditioning and I kind of did what I, you know, and it, everybody seems to have this similar, like, this is just work like any other work and I got to do what I got to do. And yeah, there are the stories where people just like kind of stumble upon stuff, but you have Most. to know the flip coin a hundred times. You're probably not going to be in that group. Yeah. Right. Don't like assume that. Oh, what scares me are the large group of people who made it, who are like Spielberg or uh, Kubrick or Hitchcock. It seems to be a lot of, a lot of male directors are just assholes. Yeah. Um, where they're like, <laughs> how'd you made it, make it? And they're like, I never would have made it except I broke into the Warner brothers lot every day and pretended to be a PA. And I'm like, See, I'll never do shit like yeah, that. And you know, I don't break the rules in that way. I wouldn't do that. There are a million ways to get to a certain position. Oh, yeah. Well, right? hopefully it's not the one where you have to hop a fence because I'm not going to do that. Well, that's like <laughs> I hear people telling stories about like, oh, like I, I found an, a way of sales. Like I saw a trend and I made yeah. a thing because I read a lot of like, like Fast Company and Inc and stuff like that, that those magazines. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, well, I saw that in the market there was this weird thing that happened. And so I thought, well, why don't I just do a thing? And I was like, oh, my God, my brain doesn't yeah. <laughs> work like that. So I'm never going to that's never going to be my thing. Or like apparently I, this could be apocryphal, but a legendarily at Will Ferrell's SNL audition. Lauren Michaels was like, I don't know, at the end. And then Will Ferrell pretended to be a dog and humped his leg and wouldn't let go. Until he was like, okay, give him a call back. And I'm like, I would never push it that far. I would, no. When he said, I don't know, I'd politely be like, 
thanks for your time. Thanks for I the really appreciate it, Lauren. Thank you. Yeah. If yeah. you need your iPad reset to factory conditions, I can do for it. Free. I can yeah. also burp yeah. a baby if you've got one. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I know all the things about the the uh, Lexus. To, Clearly, <laughs> whatever, not. The Mazda. Clearly, you're rusty. I'm trying to remember who we, Mazda was. One of them. Mazda. How how close are we to the end of this list? Oh, very close. All right, let's uh, finish it out. Okay, financial coach for creatives. Okay. Which oh, was a big thing because I got my finances in order and I yeah. didn't realize that a lot of people didn't in the creative you industry you straight up. skills in order to do that. Exactly. <laughs> and I was like, well, why not share it with people? Uh, I was the curator, researcher, and writer for a science Instagram. Uh, I was. I remember that. That was really cool. Yeah. I was a wedding invitation assembler slash envelope licker. <laughs> oh, uh, man. I was a copy editor for a clickbait site and a freelance writer for Crash. entertainment websites. No, oh, okay. no, no. Um, I wonder if there's any kid out there... Because everyone has different passions. Is like, my calling is to be a wedding invitation assembler and envelope licker. And then they get stuck acting in a really popular sitcom. And <gasps> no, they're God like, I wanted to lick wedding envelopes. Do you know envelopes. what? I loved that because that was like meditation, right? You're folding. You're just doing the same rep. And it's, and it's artistic without having to like have a lot attached to it. Like you sure. get to make beautiful things for people for a beautiful day. Um, but so that list was in, did I say Postmate? Yeah, I was a Postmate too. Mm-hmm. Um, that list was in order, like timeline. Yeah. Uh, so I moved to LA in 2009. And uh, my first entertainment job in LA where I could support myself was 2015. Man. And I'm sure people listening to this will be like, but her work's important to me and my heart or like vision of pop culture doesn't equate to money yeah, <laughs> in any way it doesn't it's weird yeah it's really um, weird but, but and that was the other thing for me was like removing like just trying to think of it as a I like doing after hours because I like that people love it you yeah. know and I like giving them another thing to watch and enjoy and, and fall in love with you know and your legacy of work could be what leads you to where you want to be you don't know right yeah. I mean people can trust but like honestly when I went and met with this my new commercial agent and she was like, so what are some things that you did? I was like, oh, well, um, for seven years, I was on this um, web, popular web series on crack.com mm-hmm. called After Hours. And she was like, what was the website? And I was mm-hmm. like, ah, okay, cool. Like, it's a, it's another, it's we like. We're just a- saying this to our managers, even at the peak, which is not true anymore. But at the peak, uh, I would get stopped probably once or twice a week by After Hours fans in life, mm-hmm. in the in meat space, in the world. And during that same period, I probably met with three dozen different Hollywood peep functionaries at various levels at film companies. Not one had ever seen one of our sketches or even knew the name Cracked. I don't know how we were able to amass such a fan base while not being seen by anyone in the, the traditional industry. It's yeah. the internet. You know, it, it, that's the thing is like, we it's like the entire population access. of New Zealand loves us. No <laughs> one in Los Angeles ever saw any of the stuff we did. But you know, it, it is a thing of like the, it's the internet has created the ability for the fans to access our work. Right. Um, but, and it's changing. It definitely changed in the time that we worked at cracked of like, you know, more traditional media looking with an actual like eye at what's going on on the internet and like pulling things. I mean, like that's true, but there's still that golf. Cause if you're going to make even an indie movie, you're still looking at one to $5 million to raise. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
you usually can't raise that just by relying on your fan base. So it's interesting. I think it's a trend we're actually seeing in our industry. There's a lot of young up and coming creatives who thought the internet was the future of video entertainment. And it, it still is. But at the same time, they thought that meant if you mastered the internet, you could just like switch lanes to film. Right, and that's not at And all. the film people still are like, no, we have our $5 million. We're not giving it to you. We're going to give it to this guy who's worked in film. Right. And you're like, well, but I, I just thought I could just hop, just hop over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's not, you know, it's not, that's not it at all. But so, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah. Let, now, okay. This show's about being real. Nothing's stopping us from getting there. We could get there. Yeah. That's the best I can offer. Yeah. Yeah. We might. Sure. We might make Ye- it. <laughs> that's the thing is like in my day, I think that's part of what keeps me from going crazy is in my day to day, my like doing stuff that I enjoy and the producing work that I'm doing right now, I really do enjoy in the moment. Yeah. yeah cultivating the present moment. I get to make like put together packages that air on television and I get to make a, a package that maybe isn't considered narrative, make it narrative. Cause that's, and that's like we were talking about before is like all the things that I've done over the years, all the skills that I have like gained, I think have made me the best version of myself for this particular job. When I apply, like if I had seen the job, the job posting for the job I'm currently working at on LinkedIn, I would not have applied. Mm-hmm. Because in my head, it's the first shout out to LinkedIn that anyone's ever given, <laughs> or whatever. LinkedIn valuable, monster, made impact. or whatever it's called. No, don't back down. Be the sole LinkedIn, LinkedIn supporter. You'll nab their uh, commercial campaign. I mean, if I could do for LinkedIn, what you'll Tiffany be, Haddish did for Groupon. Yeah, you'll be Miss LinkedIn, and then everyone will eventually get sick of you and be like, I "Hate that fucking LinkedIn <laughs> campaign, <laughs> Miss LinkedIn." She sold out. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, I'm at my uh, mid-century Lautner house on the in the Hollywood Hills. No, you're back on this lemonade. podcast explaining how they fucked you out of any pay whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, that flow of the progressive lady makes so much money. Yeah, yeah, she does. Um, but I get to like I I, and this is the other thing is I had had a really toxic experience at the clickbait site that I had worked for. Um, and they sent us an email the day before we were supposed to get paid being like, we're not going to be able to make payroll. And I was like, oh, if you're not able to make payroll for nine employees right now, there's no way you're going to have payroll in two yeah. weeks. Like, that's just you're not, you don't have enough liquidity. Company, like, yeah. we, we're done. <laughs> um, and so I put in my two weeks notice the next day and I had no job. Mm-hmm. I had no like umbrella, no no idea of what Couldn't I was going to do. Couldn't even afford an umbrella, ladies and I gentlemen. I could not. I was so soggy. Her hems were soaked. Oh, God, it was the worst. The water creeping up the back of my leg. Um, but I just started shaking the tree, like sending out emails to people, just being like, hey, I just left my job. Like, here's my resume. Here's my skills. And it was on a completely unrelated email, I was talking to my friend about a podcast that she was doing. I was going to guest on. I was like, by the way, are you hiring? Mm. I knew she worked in an office. Yeah. Did not know what she did. I was like, are you hiring? Uh, and she goes, let me ask my boss. And she said, yeah. We, we're need, looking- a, we need a new lion feeder. You're, you're hired. <laughs> we're looking for people for the upcoming award season. Send me your resume. So I sent her my oh. writing resume. And then oh, her- I know this story has turned into a really good job. Yeah. yeah. Then her <laughs> boss called me in for an interview. And I was like, 
what is the I asked her I was like what is the job and she's like it's a segment producer position I was like cool and then I googled segment producer and honestly there's no right answer because producing is a huge umbrella term that can mean a million different the production things. tells you what that means to them yeah essentially yeah and so I talked to a friend of mine who was a producer and I was like what is this and he was like chances are it's going to be something in this area and I said great so I went into the interview and I was just like okay something in my resume made this person call me in right I'm not lying I didn't lie I told the truth Mm-hmm. And then I just went in and I was myself. And I think it's the same thing as like that, that auditioning thing is I was just like, yeah, hi, this is what I've done. This is who I am. And they hired me. And then I've been there. This is going to be my third award season producing. Congratulations. Thank you. And Matt, I just think uh, to close us out here, because we are over time, but you and I are great chatters <laughs> and we don't get to see each other enough. So we'll do a part two, I'm sure. But um yeah i'm just just fascinating to me as far as the purposes of this show's topics go how it's all state of mind and because that's adjacent to what you want to be doing you could easily have and at different times in my life i would have i wouldn't now but maybe again in the future i'll get this chip on my shoulder again and i know people who worked with us who are unemployed now who still would feel like they're in hell because it's adjacent to what they thought they were doing. Right. And then I, but I know that that job is also genuinely rewarding if you allow it to be. So it's just crazy how, not always, but a lot of the time we just dictate how we feel by, and that's not to minimize uh, chemical imbalances. Or no, the struggle never, people face. ever, never. But the mental space is so much more powerful than we give it credit for. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the recurring themes of this show. It's like there was a time in my life where I've been like, but to take a segment producer job would mean God doesn't love me. I'm not special. My parents lied to me. Right. And now I I actually still think all those things, <laughs> that God doesn't particularly love me and that my parents lied to me in several key regards. Right. But I don't blame them or anyone and it's fine. Right. <laughs> it's, I don't know how I got to that place, but I would urge all listeners to not shy away from realizing that life isn't fair because that can feel almost like a death, like right, like that you don't have a special destiny can feel like a death, facing death almost. Right. But it's... Uh, Life is way easier on the other side of that realization. I f- and more, and you're more open to enjoying what's going on anyway. I feel like we don't have life's destiny, but I feel like every person, there's a place that they're to fill that no one else can fill simply by being sure. themselves, right? Yeah. By just existing as themselves with their past and their present and their feelings because and it's their true experiences. That they're completely unique. There's literally way. nobody yeah. else that exists like that. And never like has that. been, yeah. So well, it's not particularly like I'm destined for X, yeah. But it is, I'm here to be the best version of myself for this world, whatever <laughs> that great. may be. You're here to be yourself and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. great. <laughs> I'm sorry this wasn't sadder. <laughs> I no, don't it's, know. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, it's interesting. I don't know what it means. Maybe I do and I'm just in denial. But like the episodes that are about like, suicidal ideation with someone who still struggles with it or bipolarism with someone who's still currently struggling with it do way better numbers but i would never let that dictate you know right. the course of the well, topics well i mean if it makes you feel any better i'm i mean if if 
we're going there. I'm a recovering alcoholic who, as yeah. early as April, tried to kill myself. There you go. So, but you're not sad enough about it. You know, I don't know. I gotta wait until you're on the verge of a breakdown. I mean, <laughs> then I'll rush I, in with a microphone. That has been a thing I've been trying to do since I was like eight or nine. I think was the first time I tried to kill myself. Really? So, yeah. Well, I was already gonna have you on to talk about relapse because I did my big alcohol episode, but I haven't done a relapse episode, and I think that's a topic in and of itself. Yeah. Um. But we should also talk about why an eight-year-old, where you would even get the idea to kill yourself. I tried to hang myself with a jump rope in my closet. <laughs> Did you know? Ah. Don't. We're way we'll, over time. Different we'll put episode. A pause. It's fine. But that's a weird, you know, don't feel unsupported because I put a pause in that. That's no, a weird thing fine. to be like. Oh, you tried to kill yourself? All right. I don't want to hear I mean, about that right now. Katie. I'm glad I didn't do it. And I'm grateful every day. I As didn't. are we all. <laughs> That's a good note to end on. Everyone comment on this episode telling Katie how happy you are. She's still with us. Oh, boy. And in exchange, she will later tell us about her tiny model ready eight year old hands. Cutely fumbling through the process of tying a jump rope into an adorable noose. That's next time on Tales from the Pit. <laughs>